morning, everyone. If you'd like to open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 11. Good to see all of you. Father, what a blessing it is every Lord's Day to gather and have your word wash over us. We thank you for the wonderful encouragement and truth it contains. I think about one of the perhaps not often discussed difficulties of life on this side of heaven. You become our Father when we're in Christ. We pray to you. We expect you to answer our prayers, but at times we hear no. So we'll conclude this discussion this morning that we began last week about you saying no to our prayer requests, and I just thank you that your scriptures contain these wonderful examples for us to learn from and understand why you would say no, so that at times we might be um, convicted if we asked wrongly, but other times we could be encouraged that we weren't asking wrongly. It simply wasn't your will. And so we thank you for the instruction that we receive, and I pray, as I pray every Sunday, I don't think I could probably pray it too often that I would be able to do justice to these verses that I always feel um, largely inadequate to share with your people, and so don't shortchange them, Lord, because of any weaknesses in my life. I pray that you would you would be exalted and glorified and that your word be planted in each person's heart and that you would be um, pleased with everything that's said from behind this pulpit during this sermon. And I know everyone's busy, Lord, with things going on in their lives, many things that would distract us, and so help us to just give this time to you. See it as a time of worship. Be focused on what you want to say to us. See it as a time you are speaking to us because that is the case. You are speaking to us through your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. The title of the sermon's When God Says No, Part 2. When God Says No, Part 2. We started talking about this last week. We've been in a series called Pursuing Wisdom. And when we started this series, I tried to define what wisdom is and what wisdom isn't. And hopefully you remember by this point that wisdom is not knowing the future. A wise person is not the person who can say that this is going to happen or this isn't going to happen. Uh, I mean, unless God has foretold in his word that that is going to happen or is not going to happen. And a wise person is not the person who can say that God is doing this for this reason or for that reason, because many times we're left to wonder why God is doing what he's doing or not doing what we might expect him to do. That's what it means to walk by faith. And so really, what sometimes we might think is a wise person uh, is a foolish person when they're declaring something that's going to happen or even a false teacher um, the wise person is the, is the person who has enough faith to say, I don't understand why God is doing this, but I'm going to trust him anyway. And so instead, wisdom, uh, part of it at least, is uh, given to us to navigate well the trials or circumstances that we face in life, which is why in that famous passage in James 1, verses 2 through 4, about trials, and then verse 5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, simply because we need wisdom during trials. Well, one of the unique trials that we experience on this side of heaven is hearing no to our prayer requests. Few things can be as discouraging, I would say at best confusing, and at worst very hurtful when we have brought a request before the Lord uh, some number of times, perhaps one that we think we don't receive anything from. It's an unselfish request. It's one that we would uh, have every expectation God is going to answer in the affirmative, and instead he says no to it. And so when that difficult situation happens, what we need is wisdom. We need wisdom to navigate well through that trial that we're experiencing. And so we started looking at examples in the Bible of people hearing no so that we can be encouraged by them and apply that, that uh, knowledge to our lives so that we can be wise. Briefly review the lessons that we considered last week. So God might say no lesson one because we're being selfish. 
This is one of the most obvious lessons because James 4.3 tells us, you ask and do not receive because you ask or pray wrongly that you can spend it on your own passions. And so we should know that we might hear no to some of our prayer requests simply because we're asking wrongly or we're asking selfishly. Lesson two, we might hear no because it's not God's will. 1 John 5.14, it says, this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to God's will, he hears us. So sometimes we're asking, we're not asking selfishly or sinfully. Perhaps there's nothing uh, in this request that we can see that we would receive or benefit from it. Uh, But God says no simply because it's not his will. And probably for the rest of our lives, we might not ever know the answer to uh, or the reasons behind it not being God's will, which again requires us to walk by faith. The next lesson, lesson three, because of sin. Sin has consequences. One of the consequences uh, is receiving no to prayer requests. And that's not my opinion. We looked at two examples last week. There are other examples I could have used, but I, uh, if I used examples of ungodly individuals, you could think that they heard no to their prayer requests simply because they're ungodly individuals. So instead, I chose two of the godliest or, or most well-known or respected individuals in all of Scripture who prayed and heard no. Does anyone remember who that was last week? Those two figures from the Old Testament? David was one of them. David committed adultery and murder. Uh, Bathsheba was with child, and God said that he was going to take that child. For seven days, David fasted and prayed that the child would live, and he, uh, he didn't, I don't know if I'd say he heard no, but he learned the answer was no when the child died. Who's the other individual that heard no? Moses. He sinned when he struck the rock, and he pressed God. He wanted to go into the promised land to lead the people that he had loved for 40 years, to see them receive the land, and God actually said no and even stop asking me. And in both of those accounts, my point is simply that their sin had consequences. We can see that they were being disciplined, or it was part of the discipline, that they were not going to receive the answer to to those requests, and that can be the case for us too. We might ask for something and be told no um, because we're being chastised by God. The next next, uh, lesson, because of the other person. Last week, we saw a handful of some of the um, godliest individuals in the Old Testament, Jeremiah, Moses, many of them well-known simply for their intercession, or by that I mean their ability to pray and have those prayers answered, Jeremiah, Moses, Samuel, Noah, Daniel, and Job. All of these men prayed and heard no, and it had absolutely nothing to do with them. It had everything to do with the people that they were praying for, the Jews. And the important lesson for us in that is sometimes God says no to us. It has nothing to do with us, and it has everything to do with that person that we are praying for. And then the new lesson for this morning, lesson five, because he knows what's best for us. God might say no because he knows what's best for us. I'm going to look at a few verses here in 2 Corinthians 11. They're not about God saying no, but they're going to set up the verses in the following chapter about God saying no. I'm going to read through them pretty quickly. Sometimes I think it's nice just to have a number of verses sort of wash over us because it allows us to, to uh, recognize or have an elevated view, the, see the bigger picture present. And just consider as I read these verses how one individual could suffer so much. So look at verse 23 with me. Paul is talking about false apostles, people who were criticizing his ministry. 
he says, are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. And that sounds somewhat odd for Paul to talk that way about himself, right? But that's why he says, I'm talking like a madman. He acknowledges that this is um, crazy of him to have to say this, but he has to defend his ministry. So he points out all that he has suffered for Christ. And he says, compared with these men, he's experienced far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings. Just think about that for a moment. What that, I mean, he was able to say under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which is to say it's true, that he experienced more beatings than he could count. Many of us can say we've never experienced one beating for Christ. Often he was near death. Five times he received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes, less one. Imagine what that's like. To be, to be tortured like that. Three times he's beaten with rods. One time he was stoned. Three times he was shipwrecked. He spent a night and a day adrift at sea. He was on frequent journeys, in danger, experiencing danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from his own people, danger from Gentiles, danger when he's in the city, danger when he's in the wilderness, danger when he's at sea, danger from false brothers. Verse 27, in toil and hardship, through many sleepless nights, experiencing hunger and thirst, often without food, cold, and exposure. Verse 28, apart from these other things, there's also the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. I read this. Uh, first, I think I haven't suffered much for Christ. And second, I think, how could one man suffer as much as Paul did? And se- I mean, second only to uh, Job, or maybe Jeremiah, few individuals have a few individuals' names could be as synonymous with suffering as Paul's was. And my point in having you read this is when you have suffered as much as Paul has, you can become accustomed to it, familiar with it enough that you probably stop praying about things. And just to be as a little qualifier here, I'm not condemning anyone. I put myself in this category who has prayed about a headache (laughs) or has prayed about heartburn, heartburn or a stubbed toe. But my suspicion is Paul didn't bring those things before the Lord. When you experience the sorts of things that Paul experienced, you are able to go through life and endure the things that most people um, endure without even giving it a, a second thought. That was the case for him. Now keep this in mind and turn to the next chapter. Chapter 12. Here's the context for these verses. Paul experienced or he had one of the most unique experiences of anyone in all of human history. In fact, I would say he's the only individual to have ever experienced this. He went to heaven. He took a trip there. He wasn't, I would not say that he was given a vision of heaven. In his own words, it was a trip to heaven. Now, because I suppose it was so dramatic and he wanted to avoid sounding prideful in discussing it, he refers to himself in the third person which can make the count a little confusing. It can almost sound as though Paul's not talking about himself. He's talking about someone else. But understand, Paul is talking about himself and what he experienced. With that in mind, look at verse 2. Paul says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, but it it seems to him it was probably, uh, he could write about it as though it was yesterday, because he never forgot. 14 years ago, he's caught up to the third heaven. He says, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, but God knows, which is to say Paul doesn't know whether he went there physically in the body or whether it was like literally an out-of-body experience where his spirit, simply his spirit went there. Verse 3, I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Again, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. 
and he heard things that cannot be told which man may not utter, which I suppose is probably Paul's way of kind of letting us know why we were forced to experience some disappointment here. Because the moment that Paul talks about taking this trip to heaven, what is your first question? What was it like? You know, tell us. Tell us what you saw, what you heard, how wonderful it was. And so Paul's letting us know why he's not going to do that because he's forbidden from doing so. And I'd be remiss if I went through these verses and didn't make this point that is fairly unrelated to this sermon, but I think is an important part of equipping you. I don't think that any of the books that have been written about people taking trips to heaven are true. In fact, I think that they're, they're lies. I don't know whether these people are lying deliberately. I don't know whether they're deceived. Maybe they had a dream and they thought that they took a trip to heaven or they're deliberately uh, deceiving people. But when I look at this verse and Paul says that he heard things that cannot be told and he says things which men may not utter. Men are forbidden from talking about this. What are the chances that, well, even if I back up, The greatest man, arguably, in all of church history said that he could not talk about this. He could not share the details. Now, what are the chances that 2,000 years later, God is going to bring someone on the scene and have them write about it in a book or share about it on television? I don't think that's the case, and so I don't want to see you drawn into any of that. Now, as much as I'd like to know what heaven is like, all the revelation that God wants us to have of heaven has been given to us already. Everything God wants us to know about heaven is recorded in the pages of Scripture. We will not be given any further revelation. I mean, isn't that what Mormons say? They're going to tell you it's just another revelation. Their book is. There is no further revelation that God has for us. We've been given all we need. I mean, look at your your Bible. It's pretty big. I'm thankful for all that God has given us. We shouldn't covet more. And so that's the revelation we have, and we will not receive further revelation until we're actually in heaven itself. So please, Do not be drawn into some of these supposed experiences that people have. Now, since this was such a great experience, Paul, regardless of how wonderful he was, regardless of how tremendous of a man he was, he was still a man, which means he was still cloaked in flesh, and he was still susceptible to what? To temptation, to pride, to sin, like all of us. And he knew that because of the greatness of what he experienced, there was a particular temptation that he was susceptible to. And what was that? It was pride. That's not my opinion. He recognized that because of what he had experienced that nobody else had ever experienced, that he could become a proud man. And that's not my opinion. That's what he says in verse 7. So look what God did to prevent that. I would say look what God did because he loved Paul so much. Verse 7, to keep me from becoming conceited or proud because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations or the surpassing greatness of what I experienced. A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited or proud. Now, if you've been in the church for any amount of time, you've probably heard considerable speculation about what this thorn was. And I confess that I could be wrong about this, but I don't think that we know. Uh, I've read different commentaries. I've, I've heard sermons on this myself. I've done an amount of studying. Maybe I'm missing something, but I don't think that there's anything in any of these verses or any place in Scripture or any of Paul's other letters that indicates what this thorn was. You could say, well, he said it was in his flesh. 
So that tells us that it was physical. Well, the problem is the word flesh is used not just by Paul, but other New Testament authors to refer to our physical bodies, but also to refer to the old man or the unredeemed part of us that tempts us, right? So for Paul to say that the thorn is in his flesh doesn't necessarily mean that it was physical. He could mean that it was something that was in his flesh hurting it or crucifying his flesh or weakening his flesh, spiritual flesh, that his spirit would be stronger. So I just don't think we know. But with that, this is what I would say. It's a wonderful, it's, it's wonderful that we don't know. If I had to guess, I would say it's God's deliberate plan that we don't know. Because, and here's why I say that, if the thorn was physical, then someone experiencing a terrible emotional or mental problem says what? Well, unfortunately, there's no application for me. If the thorn is mental, or if the, th- the thorn, even if the thorn was spiritual, Charles Spurgeon discusses in some of, the, some of these great, um, you know, preachers or Puritans, the terrible spiritual, uh, they would probably say oppression or depression, discouragement they experience sounds worse than almost anything someone could experience physically. And so if, if the thorn was spiritual, then the person with a physical or mental or emotional problem wouldn't be able to relate. But because we don't know what the thorn is, anyone can relate. So whatever your issue or your struggle or your difficulty is, whether it's physical, whether it's mental, whether it's emotional, whether it's spiritual, you can find application from this account for your suffering or your trial. The way it's written allows you, whether it's physical, emotional, mental, spiritual, related to your job, related to your marriage, related to your family, related to your children, related to your parents, related to your siblings, related to whatever area of life is causing you trouble to find application in this. So with that in mind, look at verse 8. Paul says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Now, as far as I know from the rest of Paul's epistles, I don't see him frequently praying for himself. I see him praying for other people. I see no other, do you, can you tell me a verse where Paul prayed that he wouldn't have to experience another shipwreck? Can you tell me about a time that Paul prayed that he wouldn't be beaten again? Or a time when Paul wrote and said, being stoned was too much for me, Lord, please don't let me go through that again. I know no record of that, but I can look at this verse and two words jump out at me, two words of considerable significance. The word pleaded. Now, I'd like to think I uh, pray a few times every day. I would not say that there are that many times that I'm pleading with God. Is there a difference between praying and pleading? Yeah, there's a considerable difference. I can pray daily, but how many times have I pleaded? How many times have I cried out to God for something? Not nearly as many. And it doesn't say that Paul prayed about this. It says that he pleaded, which is to say he literally begged God that God would take this away. The other thing, the other word that jumps out at me is the number three. It would be one thing if Paul prayed about this one time. He prayed about this three times. That alone tells me how excruciating and terrible this must have been for a man who probably, and I'm not exaggerating, I mean to offend nobody, who probably experienced more suffering in some weeks of his life than many of us might experience in in our entire life. And so he knew suffering, and this was horrific for him. He begs God to take it away. If I was unfamiliar with this account, kind of 
inviting you to do something that I did last week. If I, if I didn't, had never read the first or the following verses before, here's what I would tend to think. Paul has already suffered so much, for lack of a better way to say it, give the guy a break. <laughs> you know, just take it away, Lord. That's what I think. I mean, he's already been through so much as he discussed in the previous chapter, what's God going to do? He's going to answer this prayer. This is going to be gone because we're not talking about someone that needs any more suffering in his life. He's been through enough already. Second, as far as I can tell, Paul did nothing to deserve this. I don't see any verses discussing sin that Paul committed that introduced this into his life as some form of discipline. He's not being chastised. In other words, if Paul had sinned, it'd be a little easier for us to swallow if it's not taken away. We could say, well, in a sense, you know, Paul deserved it because of this thing that he did. I don't see anything like that. Third, Paul's probably the greatest man in the church age. If we talked last week, you know, Abraham, David, and Moses might be the big three of the Old Testament. Paul's like kind of the big one, you know, of the New Testament, second to Christ. God loved, we, we learn from uh, places in Scripture that we can please God. We can bless his heart. That's an encouraging thought, isn't it? Hopefully we're all living our lives desiring to be a blessing to God. Who has probably been a greater blessing to God than Paul? Who has, who has been able to bring more pleasure to God than Paul? So he must have been very loved. So I would think someone who has blessed and pleased God as much as Paul had would be blessed in return by having this thorn removed. The fourth thing, we talked last week about some great intercessors, Moses and David. I said if there's anyone in the Old Testament that you would expect to have their prayers answered, it would be these men. If there's anyone in the New Testament, or at least in the church age, that I would expect to have his prayers answered, it would be Paul. He prays and demons flee from people's bodies. I mean, imagine that. It, he, almost, he almost looks like he has the power and authority of Christ himself, which would make sense since since Christ gave some of his power and authority to the apostles. I mean, when you pray and dead people spring back to life, you're a prayer warrior, right? <laughs> so what's my point? My point is Paul prays and those prayers are answered. Paul prays and things, things happen. Spirits return to dead bodies when this man looks to heaven. And so this prayer is going to be answered. Paul's going to get a yes. Look at verse 9. God said no. He said to me, my grace is going to be sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong." Now, when I was growing up, sometimes I heard no from my parents um, for different things, and often they would tell me why I was being told no. And interestingly, often I was being told no for the same reasons we've already discussed. I was asking for something based on lesson one. What? I was asking what? Selfishly, yeah. Probably most of the things I asked for growing up and plenty of things I asked for as an adult have been selfish. Second, it just wasn't my parents' will for me. Maybe I wasn't asking selfishly. It just wasn't what they want. Third, my sin had consequences. I was being punished. Maybe I asked to go to a friend's house and I was still grounded. And so I asked for things. I heard no. 
And my parents often told me why the answer was no. There is one other reason my parents would say no to me, and it seems to be the reason that God said no to Paul, and it's this, that my parents knew what was best for me, and they wanted what was best for me, so they said no out of my own best interests, and that's why God told Paul no, because this is what was best for him. But there is one major difference. There's one major difference between my parents telling me no and explaining it and God telling Paul no and explaining it to no. I don't know how Paul, I mean, like you can see in the verse, Paul heard or learned, maybe heard audibly, God tell him, my grace is going to be sufficient for you. So Paul learned why the answer was no. That puts me with my parents when I heard no, and Paul hearing no from God in a completely different category than the category that we live in on this side of heaven. And what I mean by that is when God says no, I'm using the word says loosely, what I really mean is when it seems like God is saying no because our prayer isn't being answered, we don't hear from God. We don't hear audibly. God doesn't speak to us like he did to the apostles. The, the canon of scripture is closed. We have the revealed word. Everything God wants to say to you, you know, is in the pages of the book that's on your lap. So we don't expect to hear from him audibly. So what that means is we don't hear no the same way I heard no as a child or the way Paul heard no as he writes about here in 2 Corinthians 12. We hear no and we don't get to find out why. And I would say that makes it considerably more difficult because how much easier is it to hear no when what? You get an, yeah, an explanation along with it. You're told no, and it's for this reason. But we don't get that. So how many times then as a result, what, what, what do we ask? You know, what do we say? Why not, God? Why wouldn't you want this? I can't understand. What I'm asking for, praying for, seems good. I can see you've answered this prayer before in other people's life. You've even answered this prayer other times in my life. Why is it no now when in other times it was yes? There, this seems like it would bring you glory, or this seems good. It seems moral or righteous. I, I don't think I'm being selfish. Why wouldn't you want this? We don't hear no, and we're left with all these questions. And so, and I believe this is kind of a theme through these two sermons, what are we forced to do? We're forced to trust or we're forced to walk by faith. Habakkuk 2.4 says the just are going to live by faith. So we get saved, we put our faith in Christ, and then you can kind of think this, well, now I have faith, and so faith will kind of be put up on the shelf, and then maybe I'll go through the rest of my life. I've had, I put my faith in, in the Son of God to be saved, but that's kind of it, and now I'll live the rest of my life sort of the way that I think is best, making the best decisions that I think will please God. But that's not what the verse says. The verse says the just shall put their faith in Christ. Well, that's true too, because they wouldn't be just or justified if they didn't, but the just shall live by faith. Every day we are expected to walk by faith. By, we're, every day we're expected to trust God. And few things and situa- few situations in life require as much faith in God or require us to walk or live by faith more than when we pray and we hear no, especially when we expected to hear yes. Now, I want you to notice something about this account that is very encouraging to me and I hope is encouraging to you. God told Paul no, but it was for Paul's best, 
Many, or here's a simpler way to say it. Many wonderful things happen to Paul as a result of God saying no. Let me just say that one more time. Many wonderful things happened in Paul's life as a result of God saying no to this thing that he terribly wanted removed. Verse 7, twice, so to keep me from being conceited. And if that's not strong enough, at the end of the verse, to keep me from being conceited. Twice Paul said that this was going to keep him humble. Verse 9, God says, my grace is sufficient to you. My power is made perfect in weakness. So Paul says, because of this, I'm going to boast all the more gladly of my weakness so the power of Christ may rest on me. So one other wonderful benefit or blessing associated with Paul hearing no is God's power is going to be shown through his life. The power of Christ is going to be manifested uh, through him versus his own power being manifested. I mean, if you have the choice, whose power do you want to be shown through your life? You want people, or here's another way to say it. Do you want people to look at your life and say, wow, you did that? Or do you want people to look at your life and say, wow, God did that through you? Or wow, you did that, but I really saw how Christ was the one working. And then they're drawn to Christ, or Christ is exalted in their lives because of what you've done. That's what he's saying there. He's saying, because of this thorn, it was evidence then that Christ was working through me versus me doing these things in my own effort. And then verse 10, for the sake of Christ, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. Maybe those are the, maybe that's the thorn, all he suffered in those respects. But then notice this, when I am weak, then I am strong. When I am weak, then I am strong. So the thorn was going to cause him to be weak. And I suspect you can all relate to this. Have you felt strong or good or healthy, whether mentally, emotionally, physically, and then all of a sudden some trial comes into your life, and now you feel what? Very weak, but suddenly you're very dependent on God, so now you are strong. So you previously thought you were strong. I mean, this is, you listen and this can sound confusing, but this is the paradoxical nature of some of the truths in Scripture, that when you feel strong, or healthy, whether physically, mentally, emotionally, financially, relationally, and that causes you to depend on yourself, you're actually weak, but then the trial is introduced, something is removed, you are weakened, and you look to God, you grow spiritually or in your relationship with Him, and now you are strong. So that's what Paul's saying. He's saying, God kept this thorn in my life so that I would not be strong. I would be weak, but in becoming weak, it made me it makes me strong. And when God tells us no, we want to remember that it's for our best. We have to remember it because we can't always see it. And we haven't, we haven't heard all the reasons or been given all the details by God. On this side of heaven, we don't get to find out why, but we do get these wonderful promises. It, it, one of the ones we're most familiar with, Romans eight twenty eight. we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This verse has application for so many areas of life, but one way you can basically interpret it is this. When you hear no, God is working that out for good. When you hear no, God is still doing good through it in, in your life and the life of others. It's just the good isn't always the good that we want. The good for us would be this happening, but God knows that this is what's best or, or gooder, and so this is what's going to happen <laughs> This is what's going to happen instead. So his good is better than our good. It's the real good that should happen. And that's what he brings about. 
The next lesson to learn about God saying no, God might say no without being displeased. And then you can turn to 2 Samuel 7. Lesson 6, God might say no without being displeased. Okay, 2 Samuel 7. While you turn there, let me give the context for this chapter. So you don't have to turn back, but in chapter 5, David builds his palace or his house, his temple. Chapter 6, David famously, well, famously unsuccessfully brings the ark into Jerusalem, but then successfully brings the ark into Jerusalem. Chapter 7 begins right after that with David living in an amount of comfort or probably luxury in his palace, and the ark being nice and conditioned and safe in Jerusalem. And in chapter 7, verse 1, when the king, this is David, he lived in his house or palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all of his surrounding enemies. So he's living well, but he's concerned God is not living as well. The king said to Nathan the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go and do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. David wants to build a temple or house for God, and what does Nathan say? What does he say? Go, do it. This sounds great. Now, I don't know about you, but if I've ever wanted to do something and wondered if I should do it, as soon as a prophet of God tells me I can do it, I feel pretty good about it, right? So I'm thinking David must have been very confident, but it seems like maybe for all of Nathan's greatness, and I do think he was a great man and a great friend of David, it seems like perhaps he didn't consult with God in this instance. And so God speaks to him. Verse 4, that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan and said, you need to go and you need to tell my servant David. Thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. I have been moving about in a tent, referring to the tabernacle, for my dwelling. In all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I ever, did I ever speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, the judges preceded the kings, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, and did I say to them, why have you not built me a house of cedar? So God said no. I want to ask you a question. When God said no, well, actually, I'm going to ask you two questions. Was God at all displeased with David? Or was God at all displeased with David's request? And the answer to both of those questions is no. And we know that because, or or if I said, was David asking for something good? At this point, you might not know. It might seem as though God didn't want a house. But really, it's just just God rhetorically asking, I I didn't ask for one. You don't need to do this for me. It's not a rebuke. It it could look like a rebuke, and it really is not. God is just saying, I didn't ask for this. At this point, you could wonder if God really wants this. So you could wonder if David's request was good. You find out later it was good. You know that God did want this. In other words, you know David's request is good because God is going to have a house or temple built for himself. You don't have to wonder if God wanted that because he has David's son Solomon do it. And then the other way that you know God was not displeased with David's request, or with David, as you can, as I, you could basically say, you can tell that God was very pleased with David because some of the most, or maybe it's not too much to say, 
one of, maybe along with the Abrahamic covenant, the most extraordinary promises ever made to any individual in the Old Testament are made to David. The Davidic covenant follows this, where God does so many wonderful things to David as a result of David's request, or in response to that, or, in, or almost like to bless David for seeking to be a blessing to God. You're getting to see here why David was the man after God's own heart, because apparently he could not sit in luxury when he felt like God was not sitting in luxury. And so God just pours out on David, and these blessings where David later just falls on his face, and he says, why would you for me, God? How could you do so much for me? You get the impression, which is one of the things that made David so great, that he'd have probably been very content spending the rest of his life out in that shepherd's field. And God does so much, and he says, how could you do so much for me, Lord? This is beyond anything I would have imagined or anything that I would uh, deserve. And this teaches us a very important lesson. Sometimes God says no, and it doesn't mean what? It doesn't mean he's displeased with us, and it doesn't mean he's displeased with our request. In fact, like in David's case, he could be completely pleased with us and with our request. I want you to imagine some situations that reveal why this is so important. When you pray for someone's salvation and that person doesn't get saved, what, what are you tempted to think? We kind of talked about this last week. Maybe God's not pleased with me because my faith isn't strong enough, or I'm doing something wrong, or I haven't prayed enough. Maybe you pray for someone's repentance, the repentance of a child, and the child doesn't repent. Maybe you pray for someone's sickness. Maybe you pray for your own sickness. There's no improvement in health. Maybe you pray for a spouse. I don't mean you pray for your spouse. I mean you're praying to get a spouse. And you're looking around, and you're seeing other people get married. You're seeing other people get spouses, and you're not. And I got married in my later 20s. To me, it seemed like a very—I mentioned this before, and I don't want to talk too much about myself, but thinking it seemed like a very long time that I was not getting married and starting to wonder, is God displeased with me for some reason? You pray for a child— And I do want to say something. I don't think this is said often enough here, and I'm not going to change anything, and I'm thankful that like Pastor Nathan did during announcements, he announced that a woman that Krista is expecting, just like previously was announced that Katie's expecting. And I hope that we always continue to make those announcements and rejoice as a church family. It's very important to me that as brothers and sisters in Christ, we rejoice with each other and mourn with each other. With that said, it is important to understand that possibly every single time that it's announced that a woman is expecting, there are other women who are grieving, and they have wanted more than anything to be able to have a child. And they're choosing to celebrate, or they're choosing to rejoice that this other person, or maybe they've lost a child. And they're choosing to rejoice with the other people who are expecting, they want to celebrate with them, but we need to understand there could have been a lot of prayer for them to be able to experience what these people are experiencing, and they've heard no. And they could feel like God is displeased with me, or he is displeased with my request, or you pray about a certain minister. I can remember how strongly I wanted to be a pastor. You pray about a job situation. You pray about your finances, and the list can go on and on with the different things we pray for. The answer is no, and what are we tempted to think? God is displeased with me is displeased with my request. And whenever you're tempted to think that, assuming you have done your best to examine your heart and see that you're not contradicting or violating James 4.3, you're not asking selfishly, then go to this account 
and see that it is not a reflection of God's pleasure in you or in your request. Be encouraged. It's the wonderful encouragement from this account that when God says no, it is not a reflection of how he feels about us or the request. Our last lesson, God says no, lesson seven, and we shouldn't pout. Go ahead and turn to 1 Chronicles 29. God might say no, lesson seven, and we shouldn't pout. Now, I don't know if this lesson sounds too harsh. If it does, allow me to say, and I mean this, that I have projected myself into this (laughs) because I'm tempted to pout. I'm the one who pouts when I hear no, okay? So don't look at this and think I'm saying that you're immature. I'm immature. I'm tempted to pout, so that's, that's part of this lesson. But you can consider in the privacy of your own heart if there's any application for you, like there's plenty for me, okay? So these verses in 1 Chronicles 29... They're about David accumulating the materials for the temple. Let me say it another way. Accumulating the materials for the temple that he was just told he's not going to be able to build. Look at me at verse 1. I'm going to go through this quickly. David said to the assembly, Solomon, my son, whom alone God has chosen, he's young, he's inexperienced, the work is great, for the palace will not be, in other words, we're not building a palace like you did for me, we're building a temple or palace for God himself, so I've provided for the house of God. So far as I was able, I provided all the gold for the gold things, silver for the silver things, bronze for the bronze things, iron for the iron things, wood for the things of wood, besides all of the ox, the stones, I don't need to read all, look at verse 3, moreover, in addition to all this, I've provided for the holy house a treasure of my own gold and silver, because of my devotion to the house of my God, I gave to the house of God. And he lists 3,000 talents of gold, 7,000 talents of silver. Now look at the end of verse 5. Who then will also offer willingly, consecrating himself today to the Lord? So David says, I have given all this. I can't give any more for the temple. Now who else would give? And what I want you to notice is, David was told that he could not build the temple, but what did he, if this is the line... This is the line, do not build the temple. What did David do? He went up as close as he could, and he stopped just short. I mean, he's practically pushing that line, just short of building the temple himself. He said, I will do everything within my power to set up my son for success, to build the greatest house for God imaginable, because we're not building a palace for man, we are building a temple for God himself and I've given all I can give, and is there anyone else who will give with me? Now, what could David have done? What could he have said? He could have pouted. He could have said, well, why not me? What's wrong with me? He did find out that it's because he shed blood, and we'll probably talk about that a little more next week, or next week, Jake Motzkas is preaching the week after that, but even when he found out it's because he shed blood, he could have said, but I shed the blood of the men you wanted blood, their blood shed. I fought the wars you wanted me to fight. You're telling me I can't build the temple because I was a man of war, but I was fighting the battles for you. I was destroying your enemies as you wanted. Why would you discipline me or withhold from me because I did what you wanted? This doesn't make sense. I'm frustrated. Am I not good enough? This is not fair. Why Solomon, who hasn't done anything, who's young and inexperienced, chosen to do this? but he didn't do any of that. Basically, David said, I don't understand the reason, but it is good enough for me that God has said no, that this is what he wants, and I will do everything I can to serve him faithfully and set up my son for success. And this lesson is important because none of us like hearing no. 
I was going over the sermon with Katie, and she chimed in, and she said, child and adult alike. None of us like hearing no. It's one of our least favorite words. When we hear it, it's tempting to get upset or pout. Instead, we need to follow David's example, and we need to keep serving the Lord faithfully. Listen to this quote. Sometimes I feel like I share quotes and people might tune out. This is from F.B. Meyer, and it greatly encouraged and challenged me. And he said, if you cannot have what you hoped, do not sit down in despair and allow the energies of your life to run to waste. Instead, arise, gird yourself to help others to achieve. If you may not build, you may gather the materials for him that shall if you can't go down in the mine, you can hold the ropes. So in other words, if God says no, do the very best you can to serve him, serve others, set up others for success. I want to conclude not just this sermon. Uh, you can start to turn to Matthew 26 while I share this. Turn to Matthew 26. I want to conclude not just this sermon, but kind of this little mini-series within this series about wisdom. With my favorite instance of God saying no. I hope this is also your favorite instance of God saying no. Matthew 26, I don't think these verses will need any context because you'll be familiar with them. We'll start at verse 39. Going a little further, Jesus fell on his face and he prayed and he said, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples, and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Verse 41, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time he went away and he prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found the disciples sleeping. Their eyes were heavy, verse 44. Leaving them again a third time, he prayed, saying the same words. So three times Jesus prayed for the same thing. Now this looks odd, doesn't it? I mean, to be honest, this is an account that brings many questions with it, such as, why would Jesus pray for something when the answer is no. And even that brings up questions. Did he not know the answer was no? And if he didn't know the answer was no, then that's troubling. And, and if he did know the answer was no, well, then why did he pray for this? And if he heard no once, why did he ask again? I mean, if God has said no, why would you ask a second time? And then to make it more confusing, he asks a third time. And then it gives the impression that the father didn't listen or didn't want to answer him. And then you start wondering about their relationship and why the father wouldn't answer the son especially if he prayed about it three times, as he did. I want to tell you very clearly that it's not what it looks like. <laughs> There's no question in Jesus' mind about what he's doing. You can look at this and say, is he hoping he doesn't go to the cross? Is, is, he, is his faith failing? Is he getting this close? And, and now he's going to buckle under the, the gruesome reality of what he'll experience and he's trying to get out of it or he's wondering if, you know, he's wondering if there's some other way for this to be accomplished without him having to experience this terrible suffering. And that's not it. Don't think that for a second. At least three times that's recorded, which tells me there's other instances that it occurred that it's not recorded. Jesus told the disciples 
that he was coming to die. Luke 9, 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. I mean, that's clear, isn't it? He knew what he was doing. He knew why he came. He saw the, the plan, the, the beginning, of, the end of it from the beginning. And so it begs the question, why did he pray this and why did he pray it three times? And I think part of the answer is contained in the uniqueness of this prayer session. Now, I might be wrong, and you can let me know if I'm missing something, but it seems that every time Jesus withdrew to pray, he was alone, alone. This time, he's alone, but he's not really alone. He brought the three disciples close enough that they could hear him, that they could see him. They were to stay awake and pray themselves. The other times that Jesus prayed, you have the record of John 17, the high priestly prayer. Do you know what Jesus prayed when he withdrew to be alone with the Father? I'm just telling you, I don't think you do. I don't think any of us know because it's not recorded. Why is this recorded? This is recorded for you and for me. This is recorded so we would know. I mean, even, why did you, I could be wrong about this. Why did Jesus keep waking the disciples up? It's almost like, I mean, he wanted them to pray, but I think he wanted them to know what he was praying. He could have prayed silently. He prayed loudly enough that they would record these words. That's why this is in the pages of Scripture. There is a record of it. They heard what he prayed and passed it along to Matthew, the author of this gospel, so that he could record it. It was an important prayer session, but it wasn't just to strengthen Christ for the crucifixion. It was to let us know. And I think, look in verse 39, the middle of the verse, these important words. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Why did he pray this three times? He's not trying to avoid going to the cross. He's letting us know we could only be saved by him going to the cross. Jesus wasn't trying to avoid the cross. He's putting in perfectly plain language that there is no other way. If there was some other way, Jesus would have heard yes to this prayer. And he even prayed it three times just, just to drive home, just to drive that nail home that there is no other way. One time would have been enough. But three times he fervently prays this. We could easily ask, could I be saved? Fill in the blank. Could I be saved by, you know, praying enough, by being good enough, by going to church enough, by reading enough scripture? And this account shows us the answer to that or anything else we might put in that blank. Can I be saved by? The answer is no. The only answer is Jesus going to the cross. And have you ever thought about this before? What if God said yes to Jesus's prayer? I was just thinking about this week. What if God said yes to Jesus' prayer? What if God said, I love my son so much, I don't want him to have to die. I love my son so much, I don't want him to have to suffer this unspeakably painful death. I love him so much, I don't want him to experience that humiliation of hanging naked on that cross like that. I don't want him to have to go through this. But if God said yes, then what? I wouldn't be saved you wouldn't be saved. What occurred to me was, if God said yes to Jesus, then God was saying no to us. The only way for God to say yes to you, the only way for God to say yes to me, was for him to say no to his son and tell him that he must go to the cross. 
Or another way to say it is God said no to his son because he loves you so much, because he loves me so much. Romans 8, 37, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So it really was God's love for me that led him to say no to his son. And I want to close with this. If you say yes to what Jesus did for you, which is to say you confess your sin, you say, yes, I am a sinner. I need a savior. I am wretched. I cannot save myself. I say yes to Jesus' sacrifice. Then God says yes to you. He receives you. But if you say no to Jesus, if you look at what he did and you reject it, you say, no, I am not a sinner. No, I do not need a savior. No, I do. I, no, I don't deserve to go to hell. To say no to those things means to be rejected by God himself, means to hear a no from him. And so just consider that. Consider the great love that caused God to say no to his son so he could say yes to you. But required in that is our acknowledgement of our sinfulness, repentance of those sins, and faith in Christ for what he's done. Father, we thank you that you are willing to say no to Jesus so that you could say yes to us. We recognize there was no other way for you to receive us or be for us to be reconciled with you except that your son went to that cross. We couldn't be good enough. There's nothing we could do. There was no other way. Jesus said, if it be possible, three times, it was made clear that it is not possible for Scott LaPierre or anyone else to be saved any other way. So we thank you for your son. We thank you for what you were willing to do with him and what he was willing to do for us. And I'd pray that if there's anyone who has said no to Jesus, to what he's done, that you would open their heart to the gospel, grant them faith in Christ, grant them repentance, that you would convict them of their sin, Lord, and that they would look to Jesus and say yes to what he has done for them. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.